Welcome to the Just Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Uh, today is another of our mini-series with Rock Investment CEO Dan Cooper. Dan, thanks for being here. So we are lucky enough to be having Lindsay Hadley on the show with us tonight. Um, Lindsay, welcome. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for crawling out of the ocean and and, <laughs> and jumping on a, a podcast here to talk about yourself and the things that you love and do in the world. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. So so grateful to be here with you guys. Listen, I would like you to start, if you wouldn't mind, um, telling us about where you really fell, you found your mojo in your career. Like, when did it start uh, where you felt like you said, you know what, this is something I love, that I'm good at, and that I want to do more of? That's really great. Thanks, Dan, for asking that. I think, you know, the first time that I felt... Uh, when you say the mojo, you mean like the confidence or is that what you yeah, mean? Confidence and excitement. Like this is something I could really do with my life. I mean, um, you know, was it when you had your first accounting job, you know, was that <laughs> it, you know, or was it something else? What was yeah. it that you kind of felt like this, this kind of fits with me, Lindsay, and it's a way for me to begin really kind of, uh, making an impact in the world. Because really... I know you've made a huge impact in the world, and I want to hear all about that. Thanks, Dan. It's a really great question. You know, I'd never imagined I'd be where I am in my career, that I would have this career or that it would take this shape. I never in my wildest dreams thought of it. I grew up in a really tiny town in uh, kind of a, a small, um, you know, farm community, ranching community in Utah of Camas and Woodland. And uh I didn't have any women around me that were professionals. All of my yeah. aunts and, and grandparents, grandmothers and the women in my community and church. And like, maybe there were some school teachers. I did have one aunt who was a, a therapist later in life, but for the most part, there weren't like um, a tremendous amount of examples of like someone making their way as an entrepreneur as a woman. And so I just never contextualized anything like this. But I remember when I um, went on my first humanitarian trip when I was 17 to Kenya, Africa was a nonprofit, like on a short-term, you know, humanitarian trip. And while I was there, I remember just like the joy I felt in, in feeling that my life had purpose. And, you know, it's arguable how much could we were even doing. I mean, totally right. Like the good that came out of that trip was really the instilling of the lifetime humanitarian in me of just the desire when I saw that, you know, and I'd looked around the world as a young girl and I'd seen disparity, but there was something about me moving towards that suffering in a concrete way that just lit me on fire. And I was like, I want to do this the rest of my life. I want to help people. It just feels good. And it, there's, it's not that altruistic. I'm the first to admit there's a deep self-serving component to it. It makes me feel like my life has purpose and meaning. And there's something about a world full of so much suffering and the idea that we maybe could diminish it in any degree just feels really hopeful. So where did you take that feeling uh, after that trip to Kenya? Where did you go next? Uh, did you go to school? And then what happened after school? Yeah, I went to college and got my degree in behavioral science and sociology, looking at like, um, you know, the behavior of people. And I had an emphasis in international development, like a focus on how do I help, you know, change systems to help people living in poverty or living in oppressed situations or in disparity of any kind, inequality? And so uh, it was very intentional about, like, I guess my formal education. But uh, I just kind of um, 
I finished college and then got an internship. I actually am a visiting professor. I happened last year at a university and I tell all my students, like the biggest hack to your career is go intern. Like be willing to scrub, you know, the toilet with a toothbrush for the person that you want to, whose career you want That's to hot. emulate one day, like do anything to just, right? Um, and so I ended up uh, interning for a nonprofit that that did humanitarian work and took these humanitarian trips with people similar to what I had done when I was 17 that I enjoyed and became such a relied upon volunteer that actually created a job for me, you know, they didn't have before. And um, I just found ways to bring value. I would be like, hey, you guys don't really have a metric to measure how much impact you're having here. And I learned some of these, you know, statistics and, and behavioral science, you know, hacks to like make sure that we know you're actually as effective as you, you know, anecdotally say you are. What if I came in and implemented this whole thing and I just went above and beyond what they asked me to do. They're like, hey, lick these stamps and send out these gala invites and come over and paper shred and, you know, show up and hand out these flyers. And then I was like, and what if I did this? And what if I did that? You know, just that that onus of personal responsibility to create value that wasn't that I could see might be in need. Um, ultimately, I think won me a job. And then and then as that job, very quickly, I rose to like a senior leader in this little nonprofit and was being groomed to take over the executive director's position. Um, and it probably just came from the crazy passion and relentless work ethic that comes when you are super passionate about something, you know? So what happened after that? I mean, you're, you're teed up to be, um, the next executive director of what organization? It was called YouthLink. It's this tiny little nonprofit based out of Utah. And I had a baby. I had my, my 14 year old son, Milo, and I I didn't want to trek the layer-ridden jungles at the moment. I want to be home and nurse and, and yeah. take care of this little infant. And funny enough, our dear friend Jess Larson here on the podcast offered me a job along with my husband to help run his foundation called Child Rescue, addressing human trafficking. And so he was really incredibly um, ahead of his time, especially as a male leader in, in offering that I could do it from home with a baby and that he wasn't threatened by that because a lot of people, you know, didn't. We weren't in the 2020 work from home Zoom era, right? This is 2008, right? Um, and he was like, I trust you. You, I know you get stuff done. And as long as there's outcomes, I don't care about, I don't need to look over your shoulder. Just, you know, we'll build stuff together. And it was really, it really provided an incredible opportunity for me. I have an edit to that story. I was thinking about this, like, what are the lessons that I have learned the most from Lindsay Hadley? And one of them is... Offer up your social capital to help other people in a non-transactional way. Like you're always setting an example for me of like doing people favors when there's nothing in it for you. And you like, as a result, like that comes back to you like a hundredfold. But another one is like, like sign up for things and invent your own job. Like your story about the YouthLink job. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I didn't actually offer you a job. What happened is you said, hey, do you want me to throw you a concert for your charity? Because you had just done that Ben Folds one that made like $90,000 or $50,000 or something. You're like, do you want me to throw you a, a concert? I was like, yeah, we totally do. <laughs> and, then, and then you became the executive director. I forgot that I pitched you on that. You're totally right. That's amazing. Um, I just remember you kind of being like, yeah, you and Jeff could help with this. That's a need. Anyway, because you're really lovely. You didn't, you had Jeff working with you. Um, if it's honest. So, I mean, that was really amazing that, um, that you, but that you were really, you know, uh, gracious and allowing for me to figure out how to have my cake and eat it too, in terms of being home with my baby and still having, you know, a way to provide an income and do what I'm passionate about. 
Are you kidding? That was the best deal for us we've ever had. We paid you like, (laughs) we didn't pay you enough. We paid you like five grand a month. You had a half-time assistant, and you threw a concert with Neon Trees, or no, Dashboard Confessional. Tell us all the bands. It was like 20 bands. Yeah, this is this this will date all of us, but it was like Free Eleven, Third Eye Blind, F4 Conventional, Neon Trees opened. They were like, who's getting discovered? Um, yeah, we had like 17 so, different bands. Big old yeah, festival. You threw like a 4,000 person concert, like yourself with a half time employee, and went and <laughs> recruited like 200 volunteers. That was like the best money we could have spent. And then you got that billionaire, Sumner Redstone, to give us the million and a half in donations that ran the charity for like the next seven years. So. It was, it was a good bet on our part. <laughs> well, thanks, Jess. I was going to say, I didn't do a lot else, <laughs> but they were volunteers. Listen, tell us about um, your first, uh, uh, the project that you did in Australia to help raise money and how it led to New York City. Uh, I love that yeah. story. Uh, my listeners, I would love to, to hear, have, uh, having had a chance to hear, hear it. And uh, and I know that Jess has asked you this before, but I think it's just an inspired uh, a moment in history that you were at the center of, center of, and we have a chance to to hear it from the horse's mouth. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear this story. Thanks, yeah. It's actually it's a it's one of the uh, most uh, pinnacle like I'm most proud of in my career in terms of the impact, just because it was so concrete. Some of the things we've done over our career, it's like you know, it moves things by degrees or you wonder like, you know, how much impact, you know, you're always questioning the totality of the impact, but this was one that just was like such a clear metric of value that we were just like, I feel so honored to have been right place, right time to have been a part of it, the right strategy. But what happened was in 2011, I moved to Australia and I'd been working for Jess and my husband, who's from Australia, had an opportunity for his work to move there. And we moved to Australia and I got um, solicited to come run a concert because they'd heard that I'd put on these charity concerts because I'd done a few by then. And they said, can you come put on this benefit concert on the eve of the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting? Like it's the Commonwealth Dignitary meeting. So all these prime ministers, presidents of Allah, including the Queen of England, were converging in Firth, Australia in October of 2011. And they called me and they said, hey, yeah, we want you to put on this concert. It was four months away. Well, music festivals and concerts, like they need a year's runway usually, right? And I said, four months away, like, tell me you have like an awesomely huge production team and like, how big is your nonprofit? They're like, there's six of us. And I said, oh my gosh. And like, my heart started palpitating. I was like, please tell me you have a lot of money. Oh no, we have no money. We need you to like raise the money too. And I was like, about to hang up on him, just like, this is absolutely ludicrous and reckless. Like, who are you? You know, and they shared the the gentleman on the phone was a guy named Michael Sheldrick. He goes by Mick, like Mick Dundee from Australia. And so charming. But Mick, who's uh, one of the co-founders of Global Citizen at the time, they were called the Global Poverty Project. And he was 23 years old. He was our policy expert. He was a law student at Perth University. And he said, no, no, let me tell you our strategy. And he explained, I can't take any credit for the geniuses of this. They they were the ones who first introduced this idea to me. They said, look, polio is something in the nonprofit sector that's like a low-hanging fruit. It's like something that we can cross off and, you know, because vaccines, a dog for vaccination, it's an infectious disease, which our world now knows a lot about thanks to COVID. But, you know, before back in 2011, polio was just like seeing the past. Everyone's eradicated in the first world. But it was 99% eradicated and it was still infectious in four countries. It was endemic in India, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Afghanistan. 
And we all know that infectious disease, if left unattended, can actually grow and come back, right? And so vaccines um, were an important part to like actually eradicate it. And other than smallpox, humans have never done that. And so they said, we think this is a thing we can have a big win in, in, the, in the nonprofit sector and like celebrate and then have resources go to other things. And we said, we've been trying to get the prime minister of Australia for the last 25 years with Bill Gates and the UN give out of the foreign aid budget to polio, but they won't because it's not something that it's like a, a major agenda because it's eradicated in Australia. So it's not, it's not their problem. Um, but they we really think we could, if we showed enough constituency support. At the end of the day, as jaded as we get about our political system, if you if you live in any form of a democracy, the voters are the employers of the politician, right? And so they said, if we can just showcase uh, through a campaign that enough voters want her to give out the foreign aid budget for polio, she'll do it, and we can create great optics. So we're putting the concert on, and instead of relying upon ticket sales, merchandise, sponsorship, donations everything that I'd ever done in the past with child rescue or others, you know, where there's like, you know, maybe a million dollars is the most success in a fundraising event. I mean, maybe 2 million if you're in the top one percentile, but it's like really hard to raise. You know, it's usually hundreds of thousands of dollars you raise in profit on a live event. Um, ultimately, their idea was, no, 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 we're going to give the tickets away for free. We're going to gamify it where people have to sign a petition to win the concert tickets, incentivizing this demonstration of voter support. And my mind was blown. I was like, this is the most insanely cool, disruptive idea. And at the core of it, to kind of like jump right into character, I think leaders who can see that if you get behind others, they will get behind you. If you're other-centric in your approach, you know something Justice has done so much about over the years, and Dan, you have too, despite knowing you and being around you. Like, you're just four other people. It just innately, naturally, with the people worthy of a relationship who want to help you. And so it was kind of, we'll get behind the voters, so, you know, provide something of value for them, and then they'll get behind us. And as a result, we'll have this outcome. And so we, I, I jumped and like built our parachute on the way down. And so in four months, it was like a, a miracle. And we were able to get Sumner Redstone, the chairman of Viacom, who's a billionaire, to underwrite the whole thing because he thought the strategy was pretty smart. You know, it's pretty neat how when you build something with uh, solid enough, you know, if, uh, you know, like resources eventually come when people can believe in it, right? And it's, sometimes it takes time, but when it's meaningful enough and it has enough there, there people get behind it, right? And so he was like, I'm the, he underwrote it. We, we launched this campaign. We had Hugh Jackman and Donna Karen and John Legend headline, you know, we had all these celebrities involved and put on this concert and we had 30,000 petitions signed in less than five days in Australia which of uh, a country of, you know, 30 million people was a significant demonstration of voter concern, which got us a meeting with the prime minister at the time was a woman named Julia Gillard. And Nick, our policy expert, had the most rehearsed pitch of his life and explained why polio and how we're going to make it look good. And come on, Hugh Jackman's involved, right? And we put on this concert and um, following the, the press, the, there was a press conference the following morning from our concert and she attended and she announced her funding commitment, which was matched by Bill Gates, because we, what we did is we found four other charities who were the Goliaths feeding back polio for 25 years, UNICEF, World Health Organization, Rotary International, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They were the people who were, you know, the big dogs in, in this effort for a long time. And we were just kind of newbies, but we said all the money would go to them. That was revolutionary to have a nonprofit be like, I'm just here to raise money for you. I'm essentially like a PR engine or a fundraiser for you. 
first they were very skeptical of us and didn't want to partner. They literally said, you're Johnny Thun lately, polio is our thing. And charities can be very parochial and scarcity mentality because it's, you know, the disposable income of the public. And it's very difficult and challenging. There's not the decorum that you have in the private sector, like the gloves are off me, the best man win, you know. It's supposed to be about ending polio, but it's actually about their own jobs and overhead and their own credit a lot of the time. Not because they're bad people, just because of the structure. And it takes people of character to pull out and see that this is the structure. This is the the dynamic, the demonizing of overhead and all these things create this competitive nature. So how can I create value for everyone else so that we can have a win for polio? End of story, right? So we we do this. And the following morning after our concert, the prime minister announces her funding commitment, which Bill Gates agreed to match dollar for dollar for a total of $118 million for polio. In our group of six employees, you know, in a four-month period, sitting there on the front row, I remember just thinking, well, I can never unlearn something that effective. So it was like, uh, that was basically what I've dealt with. I tripled down on this strategy the rest of my career in micro and macro ways we can talk about. But ultimately, it's like build something that creates an, uh, you know, a, a rising tide concept for partners. Become a value creator, not a competitor in any market all the time. And just find ways that you can make others win and not distract from them. And it's kind of, a, as our mentor Joe Ritchie would say, it's kind of a dumb, smart solution, but it works so well. Uh, Linz, I remember like, you know, you you so graciously invited me and I, I like I thought it was awesome. It was like gotta drive the talent around a little bit. Who are those Australian rap guys that yeah, were the big deal to everyone else? Yeah, they were like, yeah, they were they're like so the wasted M&M. on me. <laughs> they were so wasted on me that I got to drive them around. Right. But um, <laughs> one thing I've never asked you is how much did Sumner underwrite? It was one point five million and the concert the 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 whole campaign and concert cost one point five million. Um, but then I raised another half a million in corporate sponsorship. So we actually profited a half a million dollars from the event. But the 118 million went to the Global Folio Eradication Initiative, those four NGOs, UNICEF and the World Health Organization, not us. Yeah, but we still got ahead, you know. But I just want to say that, like, look at this, re- you know, Dan runs a successful investment business, right? <laughs> look at that return in the nonprofit space, uh, you know. Two point a two million dollar investment four months later turns into one hundred and eighteen million dollars for good. Yeah, like that's no wonder you couldn't unlearn that. Well, ironic. Yeah, well, ironically, Sumner Redstone loved it so much that he gave us another one point five million, and Bill Gates was so pleased because we pulled off what they'd been trying for twenty years with Australia that he gave us a million dollars, right? Which then led into the first funding towards Global Citizen in Central Park, where we took that same concept and applied it in the world's oyster. Um, during the weekend of the United Nations General Assembly meeting. And now we just did this on steroids. It wasn't polio. It was the banner of the entire millennial development goals, which are now called the sustainable development goals of the UN. And we, you know, got behind celebrities and artists and brands and and governments and the impact they're having. And 60,000 people on the Great Lawn all earning their tickets through actions they take on this platform of advocacy um, and built literally billions of dollars. It's now in its 10th year. This this last weekend in... Uh, in, in uh, the last week in September in New York City is the year 10 of that Global Citizen Festival, which I was really honored to executive produce the first few years and was the chief development officer. So it was a really, it's really fun to see where it's come. Um, for those of you, people, your listeners who have never heard of Global Citizen, um, you probably, if you were on social media during the pandemic, saw Lady Gaga's Home Together campaign where she had over 100 artists from 
Paul McCartney to Coldplay to Ed Sharon playing at home from their Instagram lives um, and leveraging uh, hundreds of millions of dollars for, for research into COVID-19 vaccines. Um, that was Global Citizen. So it's now become the PR engine of the United Nations and literally has leveraged, uh, I think it's over $13 billion for the world's poor as a result of that strategy. So it's pretty cool to see it's, it, as far as nonprofits go, I guess you would equate it to unicorn status or something in, a, in an equivalent of a private sector comparable. And and who were those first three years that you produced? I remember when I went, it was like Foo Fighters and Neil Young. Who were the other big bands? And didn't those first three years get like three billion in donations? Yeah, right off the bat? that's right. Yeah, each year was like 1.2 to 1.3. And yeah, good memory to us. Yeah, the artists were like everyone from Stevie Wonder to Alicia Keys, you know, to Foo Fighters and um, we just basically uh, took that same strategy and said, like, all right, let's create a massive optics moment and galvanize the general public's voice and concern and attention and optics to get top down commitments from governments, from corporations and from ultra high network families. And uh, it was really it's really powerful. And, you know, some of it is money like global. The, the, the reason I'm most proud of the end of polio is it was very clear, like 50 million from the. Australian Prime Minister was not coming had we not showed up and done that. Like they had asked her to, she said no, right? And we were so effective in getting that. Bill Gates had pledged money, so he would have matched any government anyway, but we leveraged it, right? The funding, a lot of the funding commitment from Global Citizen now is pledged money. It's money that like they leverage out of governments and other places. Some of it was already going, but it becomes an optics thing that, that the public can now hold them accountable for. But some of it's real money. And they're constantly like not totally sure to measure all of that, right? Like, how much of it would happen anyway, how much of it would, but what is for sure is that they've galvanized a movement around ending extreme poverty. There are now, you know, 6 million people on social media following them. They're able to activate the private sector. They're able to activate the entertainment sector on a dime. When within weeks of COVID-19, they were able to become the go-to PR engine for the issue for the world, which is really inspiring and cool if you can have that and utilize that in a good way. What do you do after that, Lindsay? I mean, do you just kind of pack up and go to an island and say you've done your good deed to the world? Basically. <laughs> You're so sweet. No, you'd think. I mean, I'm on an island. That's where the wet hair and Dan was making a reference. I'm living here in Oahu and foreshore in Hawaii. It's you've been in the ocean today, but um, our what I did was start a consultancy, a little non, uh, a for-profit, but for the nonprofit sector. It's a one-stop shop called Hadley Impact Consulting. And we were helping lots of other people because what happened was I had a lot of people I really admire, like Jackman and his wife, Deborah Lee Furness. Deb asked me to come help first do the same thing I did for Global Citizen for vulnerable children and orphans, which is how we I met Joe Ritchie, our mentor that connected us later in life. Um, and so whether it was Kenneth Cole calling me during the pandemic and saying, help me with destigmatizing mental health, we're getting three times more inbound calls on the crisis text hotline uh, for suicidal ideation. And I think we need to like have a conversation that destigmatizes getting help and bring awareness of how people can get help. Um, and then we had 30 plus charities from NAMI to Tre Trevor Project to uh, the crisis text hotline to the Harvard psychology department you know, a department. Like we had 30 plus charities all galvanized around this campaign we put on called How Are You Really? and leveraged quarter million dollars. And it was 600 million media impressions and billboards in Times Square and CNN 
placements and Good Morning America and Kylie Jenner and Justin Bieber and blah, 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 whoever, right? We had all of this, we galvanized all the support and using that same thinking of how can we create something that the whole sector benefits? So all these NGOs were normally viciously competing for limited resources, attention, and eyeballs who have limited overhead to spend on marketing. How can we go bring a marketing budget that benefits all of them so that they're espousing the same messaging and content at the same time? So like a rising tide, all boats can go up. We essentially play like the sophisticated choir conductor that gets them to sing the same song so that they're louder together. And I sometimes, I reference the Got Milk commercial to people as like a really help, helpful like reference of a meta campaign. Because Got Milk wasn't one milk brand. It wasn't Horizon Milk or Albertsons Milk. It was, it was the entire milk industry doing a, a, a messaging campaign to encourage consumers to drink more milk. And so I spent the last 10 years of my career helping other people do that on macro and micro levels for various causes. And it's been really, really uh, interesting to say the least and inspiring. And we've, we've made mistakes along the way and had failures and learned so much, but then we've also had stunning outcomes, like like very similar to Global Citizen where relative to their ecosystem, it's just like, wow, we, get, we go so much further when we go together. Who knew? <laughs> you know, it's pretty fun. Can I ask another question? I mean, uh, just to bring you down from the heavens to earth, what are the things, what are the <laughs> difficult things, what are the things that you struggled with in this work? What's been the hardest part and how have you kind of dealt with that um, in, in the way you've managed your, you know, your work, family, and life? Oh, thank you for asking that. That is such an important thing because there's so much I struggle with. I'm on the struggle bus on the daily, man. Um, I, I, the, there's probably two main things I've struggled with most. One is my own codependency and my own weaknesses of character. You talk about character. I don't, I don't see myself at all as one of these people. I hang out with people like you and Jess and Joe Ritchie because I want you to rub off on me. That's my, you know, full disclosure, totally transparent agenda. But the truth is, uh, I care way too much about what people think about me. Part of it is a, a, a strength wrapped in fear that I care a lot about people. Like I deeply love other people. I fall in love with them quickly and easily. And it's a, a wiring. It's a God-given thing. I don't know. Maybe it was to survive, you know, uh, all of that combination of all that. But I love people and I see the best in them. And I just am in awe of human beings and um, just geek out over their goodness and and the light in them and, and all of that. And and with that comes a deep care about what they think, right? Like if you care about someone, you care what they think. So I get really caught up in caring about what they think about me too much. You know, there's a Rudyard Kipling poem that says, I hope that all men's opinions count with you, but none too much. And I'm in the too much category, Austin. So I've cared a lot about managing my image managing my relationships in a way that gets dysfunctional, you know, like, uh, truly something I'm literally been working on through therapy. Like it's not, it's not a trite thing. This isn't like one of those, it's not one of those, like, I care too much about what people think. Like I'm a perfectionist who like, no, this is like an actual chronically toxic thing sometimes in my life. Right. Cause I think about this, like as a character, like, uh, a character flaw, like imagine having an employee, which I did at, at trail rescue where. They were totally underperforming, totally a misfit for the job, absolutely letting my my company down, our team down, everyone down consistently. And because I didn't want to hurt her feelings, kept her in the job for months and months and months until she had radical uh, uh, damaging outcomes where she wired the wrong money, $5,000 to the wrong person. And you know what I mean? Just like major heartbreaking problems that created 
put her in a position where she ended up lying about her job and how much she was working and stuff out of fear. Like I literally gave her the rope to hang herself or I had a business partner years ago, same thing, where I just saw consistently him not delivering, speaking out of two sides of his mouth, grossly exaggerating what his involvement was in other past projects. And I would find out and instead of addressing it because I wanted him to feel loved and safe and I gave all this grace and understanding, yeah. led to a position where we had him on the bank accounts without anyone checking the P&Ls and he was enmeshing his funds with his private life. Like, you know, and there was embezzlement happening. Like, devastating outcome. Like, it's not fun. It's not nice. Like, clear is kind. You know what I mean? Going to people, and that's what I learned from good character. They can say the hard things. Like, Renee Brown talks about the greatest uh, leaders are the ones willing to have difficult conversations. And I have had to just grind away at the my nature of wanting to avoid those conversations at the expense of hurting Stella's feelings or having them not like me. Even that's probably the most in, insidious part. It's like not hurting their feelings. That's probably a, a good thing to care about, but that I care about what they think of me more than I've been doing the right thing, right? So those have been really, there's a lot. I, it's rife with things. So uh, that's one. Sweet, my, it's sweet want. to share. What? I'm sorry. It's true. Yeah, it's <laughs> the second yeah, one to... is um, it's a trip. The second one, the second one is um, the difficulty in um, playing that sophisticated traffic cop. You have to encourage a lot of people to uh, check their egos and their logos at the door, right? And it requires you to lead by example. And I don't always do that. I have my own agenda. So I want everyone to work together. Dang it. And so sometimes I create forced marriages, right? And I'm pushing for something at my own earnest desire for something that I believe I can see would be the best outcome. But like letting people opt out and like, and, and surrendering that you can't always, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but not make a drink. That's been a hard thing in the, in the career. And then the third one I just that came to me for sure is the dynamic of being a working mom, you know, and living in a world where, um, I mean, I get, it, it's interesting. Like, I don't mind this question at all about balancing work and life and stuff, but I, I consistently notice I sit on panels a lot or situations where I'm with male cohorts in my career. And as a music producer and a, and a film producer and as a consultant, I'm often the only woman in the room. You know, and uh, in terms of like in, in the it's very common in my sector in social, but it's a lot of women. But in certain dynamics, in certain rooms, I'll often be the only female participant or panelist or whatever. And I often I notice that those questions are not often asked to men. I don't think you, you guys live differently. You guys are always holistically looking at your lives. We've talked a lot about the balance with your families. You have a different wiring. But I think a lot of times there's a different, I do believe this, and I don't mean to pull the gender card, but there is a different expectation. It even comes from me personally of like failing my children as a mother. And that's been really hard to navigate always. Um, and, I, you know, just the idea that, um, you know, that they're the most important thing to me. And so constantly trying to like calibrate back to, am I putting them first? Am I at the soccer game? Am I, you know, that's hard to, to balance. And the pressure I think women put on is particularly high because we have a certain mom guilt and a certain expectation on society that d does differ from from men traditionally. Um, so that, that's been hard, but I'm super grateful that, uh, that the, the way I've built my career from working from home has allowed, allowed that, you know? So I've got soccer practice tonight. I got to take my little critters too, you know, and I'll be doing that. <laughs> Um, well, uh, I appreciate when you mother my child and let Bridge come over and serve for six weeks. <laughs> Such guys. a dream. Yes. Oh my gosh. Just is um, about character. Just is, uh, and I want to brag about this kid. 
I was like looking at my kids. I'm like, what? This is what you could be? They're just like, <laughs> no, my kids are great. But, but his son is next level grateful, you know, decorum, lookful, humble. Love that kid, yes. <laughs> um, so, Lynn, uh, I know we've only got you booked here till the top of the hour. And, and uh, I want to I talk about your TED Talk. Uh, well, thank I you. loved it. Um, can you talk about uh, the subject matter and why you chose it? Yeah, I thank you so much. I um, well, our our mentor Joe Ritchie, who passed away at the beginning of the year due to COVID, um, who Dan, I had heard nothing but the most incredible, uh, you know, um, flowery compliments and thoughts from Joe, who I admire so much about Dan Cooper and his character. Joe was just crazy about Dan Cooper. And in fact, one of the more flattering things in my life is people would say, you're like the female Dan Cooper. And I was like, everyone likes Dan Cooper. That's a, right. This is the external validation girl. Once everyone liked me, I'm like, yeah, I'm winning in this room. But anyway, they, <laughs> it's not true. I'm not even close. Like, he is the deluxe version of whatever I might hope to be. But it, the truth is, I think Dan and I share in common a real infectious desire to help people. And we really love people. And uh, the, the, the Richie family is a big fan. And so Joe uh, and I worked for eight years um, and I'm still in that, in that work, helping vulnerable children in who are in foster care under orphanages, institutional care, and focusing deeply on getting them into permanent loving families, either through prevention, reunification, and or adoption. And so I gave a speech uh, at like actually a faith gathering. There's some music and there was people, we were talking about our faith. I have a, a Christian faith and we were, um, speaking at an event and I was talking about how we're all orphans until we realize, you know, that we are gods, right? Like we kind of live in this world as orphans, so to speak. And I gave this whole thought about it. Uh, I got asked to speak and I shared and a woman in the audience runs uh, TEDx conferences and she asked me to come and speak about that subject minus the faith component consent needs to be more secular. And so I shared, uh, I shared that subject, but it was a real honor to talk about it and just some of the myths and ways that we were helping is hurting these kids and how we can be, do good better, you know, and just some of the things we've learned along the way. No, it was fantastic. Um, she actually got a standing ovation. Uh, guys, <laughs> I don't know. She wouldn't say that. Uh, but oh my for God, those that want to hear it, <laughs> yeah, we need to make sure that people know it's Lindsay Hadley, TEDx, St. George, um, recently, recently published. And it was fantastic. What's Thanks, what's Dan. happening next, Lindsay, on that front? I mean, going from a TEDx uh, talk to um, to application in other areas, are you still engaged in the orphan space? And what needs to happen on a go forward basis to to help make a broader change? Yeah, thanks, Tam. We're, 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 it's really, this one is one of those cool ones where we don't need new resources. We just need to redirect the resources to more family-based solutions. Um, and so it's really an awareness game. There's um, over $3 billion pouring in to the uh, care that, you know, the vulnerable children care sector. So this is like sponsoring orphans and sponsoring an orphanage and doing short-term trips with your church to an orphanage and all that kind of stuff. Um, what we need is that to get redirected to organizations who focus on prevention. Because what we found is that kids um, living in poverty get placed into orphanages to get said three meals a day and an education because we build it. Almost if we build it, we will come. We're actually creating family separation crisis. And so 
Instead, just focus on organizations that are super focused on family as the answer, prevention, reunification, and or adoption. Because many of these kids and people, they just need support to address poverty issues. They don't need long-term warehousing. So we're looking to do a, I'm, I'm now, I've now moved into like filmmaking in my, in my career and I'm, I'm produced a recent documentary called Uncharitable. And um, I want to try to make a documentary about orphan myth and, and maybe some other content. And so we're working on stuff like that. Thanks for asking. But I, I, I think the biggest thing would be sharing and helping educate because this is actually one of those. I, I, I usually like awareness. We don't need more awareness about human trafficking. We need actual solutions, you know. But this is one that actually is awareness. It's something where 15 years ago when Jess and I were doing human trafficking, it needed awareness. No one knew what it was. No one even heard of human trafficking or modern day slavery. So it's now become a household issue and we need less awareness. We need more actual intervention. Um, this one needs a bit of both, like a lot of things do. It, it, this reminds me of that issue 15 years ago. You know what I mean? Like there's, I think in 15 years, it will be something where we're like, I can't believe we used to donate to a bunch of orphanages instead of fund social help, find families, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Lynn, you're so generous to share your time with us. I, I know we're up for time. Um, what, what's the title of the talk if people want to search it on YouTube? It's the I should have had that on the tip of my tongue. It, yeah, no worries. It's called The Shocking Truths About Orphans. Lindsay Hadley at FedEx. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we should just send her back to the heavens where she belongs and thank her for, <laughs> uh, for giving us yeah. a, a, some time <laughs> to hear your story. Thank you for contributing to the world the way you do. Uh, thank wow. you most of all uh, for being a good friend. Oh, so thank thanks. you very much. You guys are both amazing friends. I'm so grateful you had me on. And thanks for helping me share what I'm working on. It means a lot. Well, it's great to be with you. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Bye now.